The mission is continuing to discuss the two malachas of kosher and mater, of tying and untying, and we learned in the previous Mishnah, the one is only chayev for tying a knot which is permanent, a kesher shal kayoma, which he intends to really leave there forever. Now the mission begins by telling us that yeshloch kesherim she'ein chayovim alehem, there are certain types of knots which one is not chayev for tying or untying, like one is chayv for tying the knot on a camel's nose, or tying a sailor's knot. Those are the two examples which the Mishnah gave in the previous Mishnah of a Kesha Shal Kayama. But there are other types of knots, says the Mishnah, without specifying which knots these are. The one is not chayv. And the Gemara explains that the Mishnah is talking about a knot which one ties for a certain amount of time, let's say a couple of weeks or a month, and he intends to untie it after a while. So it's not as if it's a small knot which he's putting on for half a day. He wants that knot to remain there for quite a while. However, he has got the intention to untie it again. So ideally one cannot tie such a knot, midrabonon, because it is very similar to a regular kesher shal kayoma. However, if he did so, he would not be chayev. Now the Mishnah goes on to describe knots which even ideally one is totally permitted to tie. Kesheris ishamafteh chaluka, a woman may tie the opening of her cloak. And this is referring to a cloak where one edge of the cloak, let's say the edge on the right side of the cloak, she would bend over and tie on her left shoulder, and the left end of the cloak she would bend over and tie on her right um, shoulder. Now, of course, that is a knot which she would tie and untie every day. Whenever she puts it on or takes it off, she would untie it and or tie it. And therefore, it's definitely not considered permanent at all. And even though technically she could just untie one of the knots and then pull the cloak off her. So it could be that she does end up leaving one of the knots there permanently. This wasn't a common thing to do, and therefore we're not concerned that she might do that. She can tie the threads on her svacha, which is a sort of netting over a woman's hair, since again, although it's possible for her to take off that netting and put it on without untying it, so it could end up being that this will be a permanent knot. She wouldn't usually do that, she wouldn't want to ruin her hair, so she'd make sure to untie it properly, and therefore it will not end up being a permanent knot. Vishal Pasikya, threads which are part of a belt. Once again, one unties his belt every time he takes it off. Although it's possible to take down his trousers without taking off the belt and untying it, so technically it could end up being a permanent knot that is very unlikely to occur, and therefore he can tie this knot of his belt, or it's Swissman of a sandal, and his shoelaces. These are two different types of shoes. The Noides Yain Voshemen and flasks of wine and oil. They would close these by tying two knots. And although it's possible that he might leave one of the knots there totally and permanently and then just untie one, that wasn't common because if only one of the knots were untied, the wine would not come out so easily. And so he would usually untie both of them. And a pot of meat. Often they would put a cloth over it and then tie a string around it. That's how they would close, That's they sort of use that as a lid of the pot. So again, although it's possible to take this lid off without untying it, it's much easier if you untie it, and therefore that was usually done, so you would not be chayev for tying such a knot, and in fact it's even permitted ideally. Now Rebbe Lezben Yaakov adds another example, Rebbe Lezben Yaakov Omer, Rebbe Lezben Yaakov says, One can tie a rope in front of an animal at the entrance of a pen where animals are kept, so the animal would not leave, because again, that is not likely to remain there for a long time, and so it is totally permitted. The mission now goes on to discuss tying a bucket or a pail to a well. 
So you'd have a rope, and on one side of the rope would be the bucket, and on the other side the rope would be tied to the top of the well. So in general, this was left there forever, really. It was left there permanently. But the Mishnah says that one can tie the bucket with a belt. If you're using a belt as the rope for the well, then you're going to need the belt the next day, so you're going to come and take it. And you're unlikely to leave the belt there permanently, and therefore it's permitted. But you cannot use a regular rope because you are likely to leave it there forever. So it will be considered a permanent knot. However, Rabbi Yehuda Mater, Rabbi Yehuda permits you even to use a rope. And the Gemara explains Rabbi Yehuda is talking about a rope used by a weaver. A weaver has a special type of rope which he uses for his work. And since he needs it for his work, he is also unlikely to leave it there. So according to Rabbi Yehuda, it is the same as a belt. However, the Tanakama holds that since a weaver's rope is very similar to a regular rope, people will come to confuse the two, and they will end up using even a regular rope, which of course is forbidden. Alright, and now, interestingly, right at the end of the whole discussion of which knots one is chayav for, the Misha tells us the rule, Klal Omar Abihuda, Abihuda said a rule, Kol she'enishol kayoma, any knot which is not permanent, it's not intended to be left there forever. In Chayovna Lov, one is not obligated if he ties that knot or if he unties that knot. Mishnah Gimel, because the previous Mishnah discussed some halachas to do with clothes and knots on clothes, this Mishnah also discusses another din to do with clothes, and that is with regards to folding clothes. Although, strictly speaking, there's nothing wrong with folding clothes, you're just preventing them getting creased in the future. Nevertheless, Midrabanon, it's prohibited in most cases because it might appear as if you are getting rid of the creases and the wrinkled up parts of the shirt. And that is like fixing the shirt, and it's prohibited to fix things on Shabbos. Now the Mishnah says, One is allowed to fold clothes even four or five times on the same Shabbos, with the same clothes. But the Gemara explains that there are lots of different conditions for this to be permitted. Firstly, you're only allowed to do it if you want to use those clothes on Shabbos itself. Because as we're about to see in the continuation of the Mishnah, it's forbidden to prepare from Shabbos for a weekday. But also you're only allowed to do it if it's one person doing it. You're only allowed to do it if it's new clothes, where there aren't so many creases. Only on white clothes, where creases don't matter as much. And only if you haven't got any other clothes to wear. If all of those conditions are fulfilled, then the Mishnah's law applies that you're allowed to fold the clothes. Umatsinas hamitais, you're allowed to make the beds, prepare them with covers, etc., Milele Shabbos la Shabbos, you're allowed to do it on Friday night on behalf of the day of Shabbos, because you're preparing from Shabbos onto the same Shabbos, of course that's okay. Avalom is Shabbos, limits are Shabbos, but you cannot fold the duvets, and you can't make the bed look nicer on Shabbos on behalf of Motzi Shabbos, or any time after Shabbos, because it is forbidden to prepare from Shabbos on behalf of a weekday. Ends off the pair with a machleik to be Shmol and be Akiva, be Shmol and be Shmol says... One is allowed to fold clothes, tidy and make the beds. On behalf of Shabbos. This is talking about a situation where Yom Kippur falls on a Friday. So although in general on Yom Kippur you're not allowed to prepare for a weekday, you are allowed to prepare from Yom Kippur onto Shabbos, since Shabbos is considered more holy than Yom Kippur. So it's not considered a disgrace or anything to use Yom Kippur to prepare for Shabbos. And the fats of Korbanus which were brought on Shabbos can be burnt on Yom Kippur. The night after a Korban is bought, the fats are burnt on the Mizbeach. So if Yom Kippur falls on Motzei Shabbos and Sunday, it is permitted to burn the fats of the Korbanus which were brought on Shabbos, since once again the Kedusha, the holiness of Yom Kippur, is less than that of Shabbos. However, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva says... 
It's true that Shabbos is considered more holy than Yom Kippur, and that is evidenced by the fact that the punishment for one who violates Shabbos is a death penalty from the Beistim, which does not apply if you break Yom Kippur. Nevertheless, says Rabbi Akiva, when it comes to the halachas of Karbonus and burning the fats, etc., in that regard, the Kedusha of Shabbos and Yom Kippur is the same. And because of that, the fats of the Shabbos Karbonus cannot be bought on the Motzi Shabbos where Yom Kippur falls. And the fats of the Karbonus which are bought on Yom Kippur can certainly not be offered up and burnt on that night if Shabbos falls on Motzi Yom Kippur. And Ibi Akiva also argues when it comes to making the beds, etc. Because he holds that in this regard, Shabbos and Yom Kippur are viewed as the same. The main focus of the 16th parak of the Masechta is what one should do on Shabbos if there is a fire. Now, of course, if there's any danger of life involved in the fire, for example, if a house catches on fire and there are still people inside the house, then it's an obligation to put out the fire in order to save the people's lives. But if there is no danger to life, it's just that lots of one's possessions will be destroyed, then Midirabon on one is not even allowed to save most of his possessions. Even if, let's say, only half of the house is burnt down, if the house is still on fire, one is not allowed to go in to rescue some of his possessions. And the reason for this is because since one is very particular about his possessions, and when he sees them all burning down, he can get into a very big panic, and we're concerned that he might come to put out the fire in order to rescue his possessions. So the Rabbon on Rala said that you cannot rescue anything, so that you don't go in and then see that the fire is about to destroy your possessions and you might put out the fire. So that's the general rule, that you cannot go in to rescue your possessions. However, there are certain things which you can rescue, and the Mishnah begins with Kol Kisve HaKadosh, all holy writings, one can save from a fire. And this is referring to scrolls on which is written as the Mishnah says, whether it's scrolls which one is allowed to read from, or whether it's scrolls which one is not always allowed to read from. And that is referring to Ksuvim. There are certain times on Shabbos where the Rabbonon decreed that one is not allowed to learn Ksuvim, and the Mishnah will explain why in a moment. Now, in the days of old, it was actually forbidden to learn or read any Tanakh which wasn't written in its original Hebrew language of Lashon HaKadosh. Later, when the Rabbonon saw that people were starting to forget Torah and becoming more ignorant, then it became permitted. But originally, it was forbidden. And because of that, if you have scrolls of Tanakh which were written in a different language, it was forbidden to learn from them, so you cannot save them from a fire on Shabbos, since they have no use and are mukta and are not considered like regular kisvei akodesh, like regular holy scrolls. So the Mishnah says, Even if one has scrolls which are written in a different foreign language, other than Lashon HaKadosh, and the halacha is that you're not allowed to save them from a fire, nevertheless, in general, the halacha is that Te'unim Geniza, they do require Geniza, meaning you can't just throw them away, Rather, they need to be hidden away or buried, just like all holy scrolls. Okay, now the Mishnah returns to the beginning part of the Mishnah, where we said that even Kasuvim, which one is not allowed to read on part of Shabbos, one is still allowed to save them from a fire. Now, what exactly are we talking about? So the Mishnah says, Because of what reason may one not read Kasuvim? And the Mishnah answers, Because of people stopping to come to the Besa Medrash. And what that means is as follows. The custom in those days was that there was a drosha on Shabbos in matters of halacha, where everybody was supposed to attend 
and learn the halachas. Often during the week they had less time to learn, and on Shabbos where everybody was free, one of the top priorities was given to halacha so that they would know how to lead their life. Now the parts of Tanakh which are contained in Kesuvim are often very interesting, lots of stories, and the Rabbanon saw that if people would be able to read that on Shabbos, then then they would end up reading more of that and not even coming to the drosha on matters of halacha because they would get so engrossed and interested in the stories of Kesuvim. And therefore, in order to make sure that they would come to the Mesa Medrash to hear the drosha of halacha, they decreed that until they've heard the drosha, they would not be allowed to learn Kesuvim on Shabbos. Now that does mean that there is time on Shabbos to learn the Kesuvim, and that is the reason why one is allowed to save it from a fire. It's not considered mukta, and it's not considered preparing for the weekday, because you can actually use Kesuvim on Shabbos as well. Continues the mission with other holy items, Matzilin Tikka Sefer Ma Sefer. One is allowed to save a bag of tefillin together with the bag. He doesn't have to take tefillin out and just take those by itself. And in fact, the Afal Pishyesh Bersechon Mois, even if there's money in the tefillin bag, he's still allowed to take the entire bag, even though the money is generally mukta and cannot be moved. Over here there is a leniency in order to be able to save the tefillin. The Mishnah ends off with a question, To where can one save all of these things? It's all very nice you're allowed to take them outside of the house, but certainly you cannot move anything from a Shayachid into a Shusharabim. That's forbidden Midaraisa. However, you are allowed to violate a certain prohibition Midirabonon in order to save these holy items. And that's where we come on to a Movoy. A Movoy, at least in the context of our Mishnah, refers to a street which has three closed sides and one open side which goes into Erishus Harabim. Now, because this is sort of a street which opens into Rishos Arabim, it is actually very similar to the Rishos Arabim, and people might come to treat it as part of the Rishos Arabim. And therefore, with Rabbonon, one is not allowed to transfer something from Rishos Hayochid into the Movoy, and as well as that, he is not allowed to carry in the Movoy at all. But all of this is with Rabbonon. And therefore, in this situation where you need to save the tefillin or the Tanakh, you are allowed to violate this Midrabanan, and you can bring those things into the Movoy. The question is, what type of Movoy? According to the Tanakhama, if the Movoy is totally open into the Rosh Hashanah, and there's no sign or indication that this is separate, then you cannot take the tefillin and the Holy Scrolls into that Movoy. Only if it's the Movoy She'edim Afulash, to a Movoy which is not totally open, Rather, it has a post on the side, which serves as an indication that this is now separate from the Rosh Hashanah. Now, one post there, at least according to this Mishnah, is not enough to actually separate it from the Rosh Hashanah and allow you to carry there. But for these purposes, it is enough, and you can move the tefillin and the holy items into this Movoy. However, Ben Beseyer, Ben Beseyer says, Aflam Afulash, you're even allowed to move it into a Movoy which is totally open and doesn't even have a side post since it's only forbidden Midrabonon to carry there, and in order to save these things, one is allowed to move them into the Movoy. Mishnah base, as we said before, one is not allowed to save anything from the fire, because we are worried that in his rush to save his possessions, and in his panic, he might come to put out the fire. However, things which are needed for Shabbos, such as food, he can save. However, even when he can save food, he can't save any food because then again he'll start rushing and panicking to get as much food out of the house as he can, and he might come to put out the fire. So he can only save what he needs. He can save food for the three meals which one has to have on Shabbos. That which is fitting and needed for a man for his three sodais. He can save for the man. And as well as that, 
food fit for animals, he can also save, because the halacha is that one is not allowed to start eating food himself unless he first gives a meal to his animals. So in order to have his three meals of Shabbos, he'll also need to get food for his animals, but that is the maximum amount of food which he can save. Now the Mishnah elaborates, Ketad how so? Nofla the lake of Lady Shabbos. If the fire began on Friday night before they ate their first meal, so they can save the food for three meals. However, if the fire was in the morning, they've already had one meal, then they can now only save food for two meals, the remaining meals, the remaining food which they need for Shabbos. If the fire was in the afternoon, then they can only save food for the one remaining meal. Because that's all they need for Shabbos. However, interestingly, Rabbi Yossi Omer, Rabbi Yossi says, He can always save enough food for three meals, even if it's, let's say, towards the end of Shabbos. Because Rabbonin didn't make different laws for different times of Shabbos. They said that this is the amount of food which you're allowed to save from a fire on Shabbos. And that's the halacha, so it doesn't make a difference when exactly you save the food. Since this is the amount of food one needs for Shabbos, that is the amount of food he is allowed to save, regardless of when on Shabbos he is saving it.